friends, welcome to Coffee with Caregivers. I'm your host, Jess Ronnie, also known as Jess Plus the Mess. I'm an author, speaker, and founder of The Lucas Project, a nonprofit dedicated to serving special needs families with recognition and respite. I created Coffee with Caregivers as a space to bring awareness to the struggles that families often face, including difficulties related to finances, mental health, and everything else in between. It is my belief that stories can change the world, and through conversations with caregivers, I hope to provide awareness that will lead to compassion and resources. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Michelle. Welcome to Coffee with Caregivers. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. I'm excited to talk to you again. The last time we talked, we felt like we were old friends and we could have talked forever. So now we're just going to kind of let the world in on our conversation. And I just want to begin today by hearing you tell your story. So if you could just tell us a bit about yourself and your family and what you do, that would be great. Sure. So I kind of think of myself as having two different lives. I had a pre-diagnosis life and a post-diagnosis life. Pre-diagnosis, I worked as a geneticist. I have a master's of science degree. I've been published in peer-reviewed journal articles and worked as an adjunct professor. And after all of that, my son ended up getting diagnosed with autism in 2016. He was then diagnosed with apraxia of speech in 2018. And then in 2018, my daughter was also diagnosed with autism. So it's been kind of a a road and a journey that we really weren't ever prepared for. But I do have to say that it has changed my life and, and not necessarily in a bad way. I think I'm doing things now that I never thought I would had my children not be diagnosed with autism. Mm -hmm. So um, after they were diagnosed, I started two companies. So DAMES, which is Differently Abled Mothers Empowerment Society, which is now a charity, DAMES Charities Inc., which is actually undergoing another name change. We're changing it to care for the caregivers because really that's what we do. And then I also founded another company called Know It All Books, and I write um, STEM children's books. And I think that if my kids hadn't been diagnosed with autism, I never would have gone that route. And so it's, it's different than I think my life would have been if they were, quote unquote, typical children. Mm-hmm. But it's not any worse, I guess, is what I would say, right? And, and maybe it's even better, so. Yeah, I mean, nonprofit work found me as well through my son mm-hmm. and recognizing the difficulties of being a caregiver and what that looks like. Um, how old are your children today? Yeah, so my son is eight and my daughter is five. So we're very much on the beginning ends of this journey. Okay, and what does autism look like in your life? Maybe you can first speak about your son. Yeah, it's very interesting. I definitely have both ends of a spectrum. When they say it's a spectrum, it is a spectrum. Mm -hmm. People, so my son needs a lot more support. He is nonverbal. He has a lot more of the visual stimming, gets very distracted easily. 
intellectually, he is fine, very receptive to what is going on around him, what people are saying around him. It's just that with the autism and the apraxia of speech combo, it's like he has a hard time engaging in social interactions because of the autism. And then he cannot produce words because of the apraxia of speech. So he kind of has a double whammy there. Okay. My daughter, on the other hand, is extremely verbal, extremely social, but she's socially awkward and doesn't pick up on the social cues. And her diagnosis was actually a surprise diagnosis. We went to put her into one of the organizations here in Arizona, SARC, has a community school where they maintain half typical and then half children that have autism within their school. So we went to put Maria into this school as a typical child and they screen all of their kids with the ADOS. And as they were screening her, I just remember sitting there going, oh my God, we have two of them. And they came out afterwards and they were like, how do you think it went? And I said, I think she has autism. And they said, yes, so do we. And so, so when they say it's a spectrum, it is a spectrum. And even though I had a child with autism already, I did not see the autism as it presented itself in my daughter because it was so vastly different. What was the reaction process for you? And was it easier to accept that news the second time or more difficult because like sort of a double whammy type of thing? <laughs> yeah, I think it was more difficult. I think with my son, because he had speech and he lost it, we kind of knew that something was going on. We kind of knew we were expecting, we were anticipating. We knew that when we got the screening done that he would most likely get the diagnosis. In fact, I just remember being like, can we just get the diagnosis now so I can start getting treatments for him? Mm -hmm. Like it wasn't a, a heartbreaking thing because I just wanted it and I needed it to, to get him what he needed. Right. With my daughter, it was completely different because we had no clue that it was coming. So it, that one hit me like a freight train that I just didn't see. Can you talk a little bit about, you said that he had speech and then he lost it. What does that look like? And was there like an environmental factor or how, how does that work? I'm, I'm just, I'm really yeah, curious so about honest, that. Honestly, I think it happened. He had a series of ear infections and I've heard this from a lot of people. He had a series of ear infections and we did a couple rounds of antibiotics on him. Mm. And it was kind of in between that phase and, and I don't know if it was reaction from the antibiotics. I don't know if it was a symptom of him not being able to hear us for a couple of months and like understand sound and hear sound. Um, so I don't know what it was, but it seemed to happen within that period of constant ear infections and antibiotics is when he really like lost his speech. Okay. Yeah, that would make sense. The gut health and yeah. the brain gut you know, correlation. Yeah. And, okay. I've never heard that before, but that would definitely could potentially yeah. be a trigger for sure. Yeah. How do his and her needs affect your daily life as a caregiver? What do you see as an individual that is, is more difficult in your life maybe than the woman who has two, I'm doing air quotes, typically functioning <laughs> children? Like what would, what would be the defining things that 
you would say are different about your life? Yeah, so I want to say to anyone who's listening who is just entering this caregiver world that the first month, maybe year, maybe two years are really hard. Um, it's really, really difficult to kind of maintain any sense of normalcy, day-to-day -day operation. I mean, I remember there were times when, you know, laundry would just stack up to the ceiling and I did not care because that was not my priority at the time. Mm -hmm. Because it takes a lot of work and a lot of energy just to get the diagnosis, get the systems in place, get the levels of support in place that you need. And that first year or two is hard. It's it is just extremely difficult. You think you have to do everything. I remember, I think right in the beginning, like Jackson had ABA, OT, PT, speech. Like uh, we did everything for that first year or two. And then we kind of learned we don't have to do everything. Mm -hmm. And that made life a little bit easier. And so now he does ABA. They both do ABA therapy and speech to continue to try to work on on the apraxia. Um, he has an AAC device, so so that's different too. Um, but we're very blessed to have it and very thankful for that because that is his mode of communicating with us. But the day-to-day -day is just, it's just more. It's just more, it's just different. It's getting better at juggling multiple pieces of information, organizing your time, organizing your space, making sure your no. kids get what you need, but also making sure you get what you need too. Mm -hmm. And your relationships get what they need. So it's, it's, it's a lot. There's a really great visual that we use in some of the presentations that we have that show kind of um, bubbles and different, different things that like typical families have to take care of. And it's like, oh, well, your friends and your family and your work and your finances and your home. And then it's like, but then you zoom out on what parents of special needs children have to manage. And it's, oh, well, here's your DDD system. There's your speech therapist for there. There's your OT therapist for there. There's your ABA therapist for there. And there's your support coordinator. And then here's your school system. And here's your you know, OT person for that, and there's your PT person for that, and there's your speech person for that, and there's your teacher, and then there's the IEP, and like the the amount of things that people who are raising a child with disability have to keep in their head and keep organized is just exponentially larger mm -hmm. than a typical, a family with a typical child, it just is. Where can I get a copy of that graphic? It sounds amazing. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I will send it to you. Um, yes. Yeah, I will send and it to you. It's I amazing. love you giving permission to other caregivers to say you don't have to do it all. And we sort of landed on that same premise a few years ago. Um, and Luke gets most of his therapies in school, but decided for our own mental health and our family's well-being that like family dinners were more important than running Lucas around to additional therapies you know, every night after school mm, and yeah. even date night for our marriage was more important than piling on like every possible therapy that he might qualify for. Cause just because your ch child qualifies for a therapy doesn't necessarily mean that it's the best thing for your family to do that even. Yes. Um, yes. 
but yes, as yeah. a mom in those initial stages, there's so much guilt. Like, and I think there's this thought process of like, I'll do anything to fix it. How do I fix it? And then you realize like, you can't fix it. <laughs> this is, this is your child and leaning into, I think sort of more of a peaceful understanding of like, okay, let's take a breather. Let's focus on our mental health as a family and focus on the mental health of the child too, who probably doesn't have it in him and him or her to constantly be running all over the world. Um, but I love hearing you give permission to caregivers to say, you don't have to do it all. Um, because I think that's really hard to accept that. Well, and who, who wants to be under a microscope for that many hours out of the day? who wants to be watched and observed and, you know, I don't want to say judged, but I, I mean, at some level, our kids probably feel that, that stress and that anxiety of always having to perform mm -hmm. and be on. And, and to also think about who, who's around your kid most of the time. Is it, is it somebody that you have to pay to be around your kid all the time? Are your kids, developing relationships with people who are friends mm -hmm. and are they being allowed to participate in environments where they can do that somebody said that to me and it rocked my world and I was like oh my god like I am putting my child into situations where he is not getting the opportunity to build friendships with people with autism or with people who are typically developing and so our goal lately has been to try to whittle down on, you know, what, what therapies are absolutely necessary. The speech for us was absolutely necessary because of the apraxia. Um, you know, we're probably going to start fading out ABA and trying to get him more involved in activities and groups where he is around kids his age, where they can just socialize how they want to socialize like any other kid gets the opportunity to. We shouldn't deprive our children of these opportunities to be a kid and right. to be in those environments. Right. And not to mention too, when they're constantly going to all these different therapies, I think you're in essence, almost sending the message that they're broken. And yeah. that message is like constantly being reiterated. Like I have to go to this because, you know, consciously or not, there is like, you need extra support here and you need extra support here and you need extra support here. So therefore, you're not good enough. So we're going to keep yeah. plugging you into all of these different activities and therapies. And I like what you said too. And is my child around anybody who's not being paid to be around right. them? And that's so true with, with kids like ours. Often I think is we're constantly paying different professionals and specialists to sort of deal with whatever the issue is, but they're not having an opportunity to just be a child and to make authentic friendships. Yeah. Um, can you speak into ABA a little bit? I know I have a lot of listeners who are really curious about what that looks like and whether or not it might be beneficial for their child. Yeah, I know ABA is sometimes a very touchy subject and I understand why when you look at the roots of ABA, how ABA started, the types of treatment that they will do, they would do to children and not every ABA provider is the same and not every child is going to benefit from ABA. So I'll just put that out there to begin with. 
we were very blessed to work with a company here in town called Sark, and they are one of the better ABA companies out there. They, you know, they, there's a lot of um, compliance driven ABA out there. We make sure in our family and at Sark that they do not do that. So, you know, if they want my son to engage in an activity or to do something, then they have to make the activity something that he wants to engage in. <laughs> okay. I like that. You know, and he has, he, he can say no. And if he says no, then they respect it. And that's, that's always been a ground rule for us and for our family when it comes to therapy and how it works and what it looks like is that if Jackson doesn't want to participate and if Jackson doesn't want to do something, then it's on them to create an environment and to create programs that he wants to participate in. Because, you know, Jackson shouldn't have to do everything anyone ever tells them to. He's not a monkey. He's not a robot. That's not what I ever want out of him. And I know that there are a lot of adults out there with autism who are scarred because they were, they were beat into them this thing that you have to comply with adults. Mm -hmm. And we always want to make sure that when Jackson is being given ABA that he can say no. If he doesn't want to do what they're doing, then they have to figure out how to make him interested in what they want. And so that's, you know, that's, that's been our baseline. We've had some caregivers and some ABA therapists that have come through our house that I've hired. And parents, you have every right <laughs> to fire a therapist. If they're not working well with your son, if they cannot come up with a way to engage with their son, if they're not building an authentic relationship with your child, you can fire them. I have fired a number of therapists over the years who have just not worked with my son well or have not, you know, jived with this idea of you have to get him to buy into what you're doing. You're not forcing him. You're not taking things away from him. You're not doing anything. So when I sit on in on ABA sessions with my son, they'll set up activities and things like that for him to do while he's like stimming and watching his movies. And they'll ask him, hey, Jackson, you know, pause it, come over here and look at this. And he'll pause it and he'll go over and he's interested. He'll play the game and he'll work with them. And then he's out, you know, and he's done. Right. Um, but it's very, he goes to them. They're not taking things away from him. And that's, that's what I appreciate with the level of ABA that we've gotten. And I know that it's not like that everywhere. I know that there are still very um, compliance-driven ABA therapy therapies out there. So, you know, parents, just be aware, be watchful, set, set what your boundaries are and what your rules are with the organizations that you work with. And if they don't jive with what you think ABA should look like and how you want them to work with your child, then you fire the therapist or you move on from that company. And there are a lot of companies now that are doing ABA in a different way. And I honestly sometimes wish that they had just changed the name because I think what my son gets in terms of ABA doesn't look anything like what the original ABA therapies used to look like. Okay. Now I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit here. Um, sure. 
I recently put out a post that I got some backlash about a day I had with Lucas where he had to go to the doctor's office and he will be 17 in yeah. August. He's classified as having profound autism, um, nonverbal, um, needs help with mobility. And I explained to him, we had to go to the doctor's office to get established at our new family practice and he needed more medication. So we had to get his meds refilled and he had to get established and you know, everything that goes into a new doctor. And so I explained it to him and I said, you have to put your socks and shoes on. We got to go to the doctor and just refused, um, reached out and pulled my hair. And I said, Lucas, 20 more minutes on your iPad, set the timer. We need to go to the doctor. We need to get this done. The timer went off. I go to try to put his socks and shoes on. He stuffs his feet under his chair and he reaches out and scratches me all up and down my arm. I said, Lucas, we have to go to the doctor. And at this point, you know, this is a grown child of mine who I'm trying to reason with, who is who has been cognitively labeled at about a nine to 12 month old level. And so I put his, his shoes on. I carry him out to the car, which he's almost 17. And I put him in his seatbelt because we have to go to the doctor and we have yeah. to get this script for him. And I got some backlash from the autistic community for forcing him um, to do something that was in his best interest. And Lucas's brain can't always rationalize what he needs for his health, for his safety. I'd like you to speak into that a little bit. I think that there are times when, you know, as a parent, you, you have to just do things that need to get done. And I don't think that that is unique to children with autism. I think that every single parent forces their children to do things that need to get done. Right. I mean, I'm does sorry. any child want to right? get a shot? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yes, mom, please. I want another right? shot. I mean, and that's what I tried yes. to explain as his mother, like Lucas right. could need a life-saving brain surgery. And right now he's so obsessed with his iPad that he wouldn't want to get in the car to go to a life-saving brain surgery if he had to. And as his mother who loves him with everything in me, there are times when you say, no, you don't know what's best for yourself. And so this is what we're going to do. And some of the backlash was like, you're taking away his autonomy. You're taking away his ability to choose. And I think my response was exactly what you said. He's one of my kids. You don't always get to choose what you're going to do. <laughs> so, well, well, right. Like there's this big conversation about forced compliance and how it's always bad. And it's like, I'm sorry, but if you have a typical five-year-old child, you're still going to have the same rules about whether or not that child can run out into a street without looking both ways that I will for my child, right? Like, like there are some things that, that the answer is no, or the answer is because I'm your parent, we're doing this. Right. Like, like that is, that, that is universal, whether or not your child has autism for certain things, doctor's appointments, safety. I mean, there are times when the parent is the parent and the parent is going to make the child do what they have to do. And it's not, all the time, every time, but there are certain times where, where I'm sorry, 
but I'm going to, I'm going to do the same thing that a parent of a typically developing child is going to do and don't get on me for doing that. Yeah. Because if Luke or any of his siblings had their choice, they would eat chocolate cake and drink chocolate milk morning, noon, and night. But because their brains aren't fully developed until they're 21 years old and they can't always make wise decisions for themselves, they have parents. (laughs) So Right? (laughs) Yes. It just felt like I was banging my head against the wall. Like, are you kidding? I should be like, no, okay, Luke, you don't need to go to the doctor and get your medication and like, and they're all like, well, you should have figured out how to get him to comply. Well, we're running late at this point. <laughs> like at this but, point, we need to get to the doctor. So I'm listening to that whole story, right? Like you prompted him, you set a timer, like you did all of the steps that you had, like the tools that you had to get him to go. And he was not interested. He wanted it's to stay like, home. So it's not like you like woke up in the morning and you grabbed him and you threw him in the car. You didn't talk to him. You didn't prompt. You didn't set a timer. Right. Like it's right. not like you were a complete like jerk about it. Like, right. You did all of the right things leading up to it. And when he didn't want to go, you're like, okay. And you pick up and I can't even imagine what that looks like. Oh, it's you're intense. A gigantic right. 17 year old child in right. the car. People are like, you have good, you have good biceps. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) You probably do. (laughs) I'm picking up my 17-year-old, like, bringing him places because he refuses. So there is a time when, like, mom knows best. And so I'm glad to hear you clarify that because I do think the, the dialogue in that community and in general right now is, like, don't force compliance with anything and it's sort of like eh, yeah there are some things you do force compliance when their health or safety is you know a matter of concern and that's what we do as parents because we love our children that much so and that's what parents do with typical children you know what i mean like that's what any parent does Right. I mean, you think my kids want to go to school? Probably not. They'd rather rather sit at home and watch movies and play video games, but too bad. You're going to school. Right? I mean, it's one thing, it's one thing to force compliance on every single thing, what they wear, what they're watching, what they're doing all day long, the choices that they have. But when it comes to safety, yeah, I'm sorry. That's, that's our role as a parent. And even, you know, we've sort of forced the issue even with like, park days at times because it's in Luke's best interest not to sit at home and play on his iPad 24-7 and we're going to go have a family picnic at the park which he's not super excited about but my husband is like "Mm -mm, come on you're going you're going to get out of your normal routine and we're going to do something fun as a family and he bucks it a little bit but when he gets there he has a good time so it's just sort of forcing him out of his comfort zone occasionally. And I think we all need that, right? Like right. we all need to be pushed out of our comfort zone and we all need to have new experiences and fresh experiences too. Um, to say that happiness for a child with autism is sitting in a room all day watching video games, I don't think is fair to that person with autism because I don't think that you would say that that is happiness for anybody else. 
I know. And I think they struggle with the same addictions as all of us. I see that in him, like he's become addicted to his iPad, just like my other kids tend to do if we (laughs) allow too much time on their screens. And it's saying, no, sorry, we're not doing this. And he's not going to be super excited about it. He's a teenage boy, but that's how it goes. Anyway, we'll transition a little bit here. Um, I believe that we'll only get the resources and support we need as caregivers by being honest. And I think you do a fantastic job of being honest as well. Um, We've had a lot of misunderstandings, and I know I've mentioned this before, about Luke's safety bed. He has this big, beautiful bed that his insurance paid for to keep him safe at night so he doesn't elope and, you know, the the whole drill. What's often misunderstood about your life or your child that you would like to explain? (laughs) <laughs> I love you okay, so, so Jackson either elopes or likes to lock the dogs outside of the house. <laughs> oh, okay. Right. So we have double key locks on our door. And so anytime anyone comes into our home for the first time, they walk in, I close the door and I lock it with a key behind them. <laughs> and they're always like, that's interesting. And it makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> Like any autism mom is like, I get it. (laughs) Right. But to somebody who doesn't know, they're, they're kind of like, why did you just lock me into your house with me? Right. Right. But it's that, that extra layer of safety that you always need with children who elope. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the biggest thing with us and I think the other thing with Jackson is because he's nonverbal, I think often people think that he's non-thinking, you know, mm-hmm. and Jackson is nonverbal, but receptively he is fine. He understands everything that everyone says to him, about him, near him, to him. And I'm always trying to make the point to people to just go and talk to him. Mm-hmm. He understands exactly what you're saying. He understands how you're feeling. He understands your attitude towards him. You know, and he can respond with his talker if he chooses to, if you're interesting enough. Right, right. If you're talking about what he wants to talk about, you know, and I think it's just having that open mind and open heart that just because somebody looks different doesn't mean that they don't understand what you're doing or what you're saying. And to always assume competency is, mm-hmm. is, is our biggest thing. Yeah, I like that. Um and that's funny. I've heard of, of moms too, like having like all these double locks on the fridge and the pantry and, you know, kids who struggle with, with food issues or due to medication, or I don't know where all that necessarily comes from. It's not one of our struggles, but, and then people come into their homes and they're like, why do you have this lock on your fridge and on your pantry? And they're like, because they would eat themselves to death if we didn't like put some security measures in place. So I, I totally hear what you're saying with right. the locks and yeah, special <laughs> needs families understand that facet for sure. Yeah. Um, I'm a huge believer in self-care and just got back from my morning walk, actually. Are you able to incorporate self-care into your life at all? And what does this look like for you? When it's not 118 in Arizona, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, typically, I get up at five every morning. And I do a three-mile hike with the dogs. Oh, good for you. And that has been amazing. There was 
there was a time when I didn't sleep. So Jackson didn't sleep for probably the first three or four years of his life. He he would have night terrors. We found out it was a gluten intolerance. As soon as we cut the gluten, he slept through the night. Okay. And so during that period of time, it was really hard, right? Because you're just exhausted. And so I found Pilates. <laughs> and what I love about Pilates is you do a majority of Pilates laying on your back. Perfect. <laughs> so even with three hours of sleep, I was like, I can lay here and stick my foot in the air and make circles. <laughs> right. So that was my go-to exercise. And if you go onto the Dame's website, we have, I think, 70 hours of Pilates videos that people can watch and participate in. Because for me, that was my go-to. That was like all I could manage to do. I couldn't lift. I couldn't run. I couldn't do any of these like high cardio class, forget it. I could lay on my back and like swing my leg in the air, but it, it was, it kept me moving. It kept me active. It kept me sane. So that was good. And I think that depending on where you are in your journey, that self care routine is just going to look different. Mm -hmm. If you aren't sleeping, you're not going to probably hit the gym. Mm -hmm. You know, it might be it, a nap. <laughs> it might be. A, yeah. Right. It might be your bed. <laughs> right. Exactly. But that self-care that's taking care of yourself. Yeah, there was, there was one mother I talked to and I thought it was very interesting. She kept a diary of all of the things that she did during the day. She did it for like a week and all what, what was her week? Like, what did she do every single day? What were, what were her routines? And then she went back and she looked at who, who was that for? What was that activity for? And at the end of the week, she realized that out of a whole week, she maybe spent 15 minutes on herself. <sighs> and I think it's really important for us to make sure that we're carving out time and space in our lives for ourselves, mm -hmm. because we lose ourselves within these diagnoses. We lose our sense of identity. Sometimes we lose our friends. Sometimes we lose our family. And all of that is just so devastating to our psyche and, and how we understand our place in the world. And I think that making sure that you're trying to carve out 10, 15 minutes, it doesn't have to be a lot, especially if you're new to this and you're experiencing that chaos. But can you take 10 to 15 minutes? Maybe it's not walking. Maybe it's not running. Maybe it's not doing yoga. Maybe it's doing a, a paint by number. Like, honestly, I love paint by numbers. <laughs> I'm such a nerd. But I love doing paint by numbers. If I have like 10 minutes, I'll just pull out a paint by number. And for 10 minutes, I'm not thinking about my kid. I'm not thinking about the diagnosis. I'm not thinking about my laundry list of things I have to do that day. I am looking for the number two on this canvas and I'm going to fill it in with this blue paint. Mm -hmm. I love <laughs> that. that. And it will. Yeah. Pain. Yeah. And it will look different through different seasons of life too. I think sometimes I've been in seasons where it's like remembering to drink enough water and take my vitamins. Like that's pretty much my yeah. self care. <laughs> Just, or like eating healthy food is another form of self care for me because it's so easy to just grab some mac and cheese, leftover mac and cheese, you know, that the kids had or, 
or taking the time to make myself something healthy and that's going to sustain me for the day. Um, but it can be like that simple, just, you know, having Instacart bring you some healthy ingredients so you can throw together a salad or some salmon and asparagus and feel good about yourself rather than eating something that's, you know, not going to give you any energy and deplete you and you're just going to have self-loathing afterwards. So it's, it's so right. different, but, um, the Pilates, I've never tried that. Now you've inspired me to go to your website and check that out. <laughs> I really oh my like gosh, I love it. the aspect of being able to lay on my back. That sounds really appealing. <laughs> so I'm kind of a, a lazy workout person anyway. So. Yeah, I could never get into yoga because I can't do the wrist thing. But a lot of the Pilates stuff is like laying on your back and, you know, doing clams and doing circles with your legs and doing ab work. And I don't know, I just, I fell in love with it because of those things. I'll maybe check it out this afternoon if I can get the house quiet down a bit. Where, um, I know we're both like deeply immersed in the caregivers and trying to see caregivers and provide respite and provide awareness and recognition and all that jazz. Where, in your opinion, do you think there is the biggest need for improvement for caregivers? Oh, that is a loaded question. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that what we need to do is create a system where caregivers can go back to just being parents. Wouldn't that be amazing? I mean, we shouldn't have to spend hours advocating. We shouldn't have to spend hours fighting we shouldn't have to spend hours battling systems just to get our kids the, the things that they need. We should be allowed to be mom. How, how many of us feel like we can be mom? I mean, I know for the first couple years when Jackson was diagnosed, I didn't feel like I even had time to play with him mm -hmm. or to interact with him because he was constantly with therapists and where was our time to bond where was our time to interact and you know I also think that there need to be more programs and this is what we were starting to focus on at Dames is there need to be a lot more programs that help parents initially get through that grief and that those feelings that you feel when you first get diagnosed, I feel like we get the diagnosis and we go right into action mm -hmm. and there isn't a space in there where we can talk and work through the feelings that we feel about having this diagnosis and, and what it means for us for the rest of our lives. And it's not that, you know, I, I think that, having a diagnosis means doom and gloom and, and everything, but it is a shift that has to happen with what you thought your life was going to be like, and that it's not worse. It's just going to be different. Mm -hmm. And how do you prepare for that different experience? And how do you, you know, find the resources that you need that make that experience good? 
And so that it's not like, oh, I have this kid with autism, my life is over. No, you have a kid with autism and life is just going to look a little different. And that's okay. You know, I think we get sucked into what this idea of what normal is and what typical is and all these expectations of what our life was going to look like that we stop ourselves from experiencing what life is here and now and enjoying and embracing that life. But I think too, so much of that goes to that graphic we were initially talking about. Um, yeah. It's like you said, if we could just have time to be a mom and not spend hours on the phone. There was a day last week where I spent five hours on the phone trying to track down what we needed. Cause you know, I mean, when you're in the special needs world, it's like you need an evaluation for this and then you call this number and then they have a waiting list. So you call this number and then you're calling, you know, I mean, you know, the system and, but that's how I spent my day. It was like, right. I shouldn't, why isn't this easier? And if it was easier, there would be space for these things that you're talking about, like addressing the grief because there is some grief, you know, in the diagnosis and there would be space to just be a mom and just play with our kids. I feel that too. Like my days are so full with like paperwork that I have to do or calls I have to make just to get the services and the support that we need that there's no space for that. And that's a shame. Mm -hmm. That is yes. a shame that it has to be so difficult to get what we need for our kids. Right. I mean, we're, we're talking about, right. Just giving our kids the opportunity to live into their full potential. And why is that so dang hard? And why are there so many barriers that are put in place to prevent that from happening? Right. Why aren't these systems just easier to navigate, easier to use? much easier to navigate and why can't our kids have their mom who like yeah. reads them a story because she has time or you know plays a game yeah. with them or because we're fried there's no time i mean you know just like i do it's the piles of paperwork that we deal with on an annual basis people would be shocked at how much <laughs> how much goes into that and you're oh, basically like repeating yourself over and over. And I always think too, why isn't there like an app with all this, this stored in it about him? Like somebody could just pull up the app and, oh, there's his whole mm -hmm. medical history rather than me having to constantly reiterate. <laughs> like yeah, somebody needs to come up with something like this, or maybe it's out there and I'm not aware of it, but <laughs> it just seems like a lot of hurdles that we're always jumping through. Yes, it's exhausting. It's mentally exhausting too. And it's emotionally exhausting because every time you fill out those forms, it's milestones. It's mm -hmm. what's your kid not doing? What are, where are they lacking? And I almost wish we would change the face of this. And I have a friend who's working on this instead of constantly looking at how our kids are not doing things, why aren't we looking at their strengths and why aren't mm -hmm. we looking at what they can do and why aren't we shifting the dialogue to that too? Because I feel like the more we as parents have to look at what they're not doing and what they're not achieving, just it's just hard. It's just emotionally draining to be hit with that reality over and over and over again. 
instead of people looking at and appreciating what our kids can do and the challenges that they do overcome. And I wish that a lot of that conversation shifted to strength-based approach instead of deficit-based approach. Yeah, absolutely. And I find myself even thinking as you're saying that, how do I approach all that paperwork? And I think I disengage. I just mm -hmm. fill it out it, because yeah, to like sit there with those feelings. Yeah. Like, oh, this is where we're at again. So I think I yeah. disengage. It's just a task. I like compartmentalize, get it done. And so then we're again back to that, like not dealing with my grief because there isn't any time because I'm <laughs> filling out paperwork. So yeah, it's just this endless cycle. And now even like Lucas turned 17 in August and I've been told that, okay, so you've got whatever you need in place until he's 18. And then there's a whole different system. <laughs> and I'm like, what? Don't we have to start all over again in one year? Like, why can't we just transfer and have the same system? And, but yeah, it's just like, come on. But that's why we, that's why yeah. we talk about it. That's why we share. That's why we have these podcasts and nonprofit work and to raise awareness and to maybe change the system at some point. Absolutely. And I know, yeah, I mean, even in Arizona, we were working on legislation last year because I couldn't even believe it. There was, so we have the Arizona early intervention system in our, and every state does have um, idea part C in their state. And what we learned was that the providers in the Arizona Early Intervention System, if they thought and if their screening tools showed that a child might have autism, they were basically saying it was outside of their scope of work to tell the parent or to do additional screening for autism. Uh, <laughs> I read that <laughs> sentence and I was like, what? You know, really, like why, what, like you are the first medical professionals to really evaluate the child. And even if you suspect autism, because it is not a part of the policy language, you don't tell the parent and you don't do additional screening. Oh my word. That's insane. Okay. So we ran legislation last year that fell apart, but we still managed policy wise to get it into the policy documents. But it's just fascinating that those are the kinds of roadblocks and and silliness that are happening that stop and prevent our children from getting care earlier and in a manner that makes sense right like you are the people who are looking at my child for the first time you should id the autism you should scream for the autism you should suggest that we get evaluations done that should happen seamlessly and easily without putting the onus on the parent to try to come up with that answer for themselves right because then the parent the whole next week is calling insurance companies trying to figure out which places will accept their insurance which places don't have a wait list where can i get in yeah. and it's right. like yeah why can't it be easier yeah so connecticut know. actually has a really amazing system because i looked at every single state's idea for the system connecticut they do that they screen every single child in their Arizona early in their connecticut early intervention system if they think they have autism they do the evaluation within the system and then they put them into therapies within the system Beautiful. just like that there Beautiful. you go listeners we all have to move to yep. connecticut so <laughs> 
I've been pretty pleased with Michigan now that we've been here. They've moved along pretty quickly. So I'm happy we moved out of the South. <laughs> well, and it's amazing too, right? That each state gets to decide what kind of care a child has. Like it does kind of blow my mind that this equity of care and of being able to live into your full potential is based upon state and what state you live in and what they can offer you. I agree. We I moved to Tennessee very naive, amazing. like just assuming, well, states have stuff. No, they don't. Yeah. Not every state has stuff. You need to do your homework. We learned that the mm -hmm. hard way. Three, yeah. three moves in seven years. So <laughs> chasing this unicorn idea of support and systems somewhere. Yeah. But yeah. Well, this has been good. I have three takeaway questions. The first one is, how has being a caregiver changed you? Oh my God. It has changed me in some very profound ways. And I want to, I want to say in very positive ways. I don't think my life would be what it is today without my kids having autism. Now, would I say that sentence a year after my son was diagnosed? No, <laughs> probably not. It, it took me a while to get to this space. So if you're still in that space and you're hearing that sentence, it's okay if you don't feel that way right now, because trust me, I did not in the very beginning. But the community that you find within the special needs space is absolutely amazing. I have met parents, women, organizations, people who are just wonderful and who experience this along with you. And I think because of that, it, it's like you're part of this club. My friend says this, she's like, this is a, a club that I never wanted to be in. But now that I just can't imagine living without because there is a special bond and connectedness that this group has that nobody else has. I also think that the, the bond and connection that I have to my son is very deep and very different than I think the bond and connection parents have to typically developing children. And I think some of that is chemical. You go through stress, you release cuddle hormones, you build like this, this deeper bond with people that you endure stress with. Um, and, you know, I have this love for him that I never imagined possible and for my daughter. And I also think that it's opened my eyes. I grew up going to Catholic school. I never had any kind of interactions with anyone with disabilities before my children were diagnosed. And I think it opened my eyes and my heart to a whole different community and group of people that I never would have gotten as invested in if my child, if my children did not have a diagnosis. And so it's definitely not the path that I thought I was marching down when I was younger, when I graduated from college, when I got my master's degree from college, when I was working as a geneticist, like this is not where I thought my life was going, but it's better. Yeah, I like that. 
it changes you too in so many positive ways and just helps you to be able to see, I think, humanity with a new set of eyes. You're very, you become very empathetic, I think, and patient through all of it. Second question, if you had one hour all to yourself, how would you spend it? Well, I do right now and I'm talking to you. Okay. (laughs) So thank you for Um. (laughs) sharing your one hour with me. Honestly, I'm always about how can I use my time to help the mother who's struggling? I find that I have a lot of I want to say I I live a very blessed life and I want to make sure that in the time that I have is spent in the service of others I could be a person who is sitting on the couch eating bonbons watching soap operas all day and all of that stuff but I don't want to be that person. I am constantly, and I have for the last three years, just when I have time, giving it to my community, giving it to helping my community, giving it to help that mother that couldn't do it for herself. So I'm going to help her do it with her, do it for her, or build programs that, that help others. That's really what my focus is and and whenever I do have free time that's what I do um, my husband just laughs at me sometimes because I'm like I work all day and he's like but you don't bring any money in <laughs> I'm mm-hmm. like I know but I'm helping others like to me it's never been about the monetary part of what I do it's about am I building systems of care am I building programs am I creating tools am I getting webinars am I am I doing something that's going to help relieve the stress of another person. That's, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to dedicate my life to. Mm-hmm. I love it. Me too. Last but not least, how many cups of coffee are you drinking these days? <laughs> Only one. <laughs> okay. Good for you. Uh, yeah, I have always, I, and it was really, it's really funny. I think that there's a little bit of ADHD going on in me because I'm constantly on the go and I didn't really need coffee until my son didn't sleep for three Mm -hmm. years. So I'm constantly moving, going and operating. Um, One cup of coffee is, is good for me. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Where can people find you if they want to learn more about you and your organization and all the things that you have going on? Yeah, so depending on when this airs, we are, like I said, in the middle of a name change. So right now, our current website is damescharities.org. And even if we make the web switch afterwards, it'll redirect you to our new page. But our new page will be care, the number four, thecaregivers.org. And if you go on there, you will get access to, we have over... 25 guided meditations. We have eight 21 day fitness programs. We have over, I think 30 webinars now that are on there, over 35 downloadable tools and a couple of different roadmaps just to help parents kind of with different system processes and really just trying to build out and provide as many resources as we possibly can. So if you 
go onto the website. We hope that you look around, you find access to tools, resources, education that you need. If you're on the website, you're like, oh my God, I really had a question about this and I couldn't find it. Email me. We are always wanting to make sure that we are up to date and we are answering the questions that are out there in the community. Awesome. Well, thank you, Michelle. You are doing good work in the world. And I'm proud that I was able to interview you and get your resources out into caregivers' hands. I think it will be an invaluable thank asset. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And I, you know, I love finding other mothers like you. And we are Jessica, the ones who, who know what is needed and the ones who, who build the things that are missing. And I appreciate everything that you are doing and everything that you are building and the documentary that you are working on and the books that you publish. I love to meet other mothers that are just willing to put themselves out there and to share and to not be afraid to share and Thank you for doing that. Thank you. My husband often says the same thing to me as your husband says to you. You sure work a lot and don't make a lot of money. <laughs> and I'm like, but I take the same way. Like if I can change the world or make a little difference in somebody's life, then that works for me. Like I'm not driven by monetary value. Like that doesn't drive me. Um, I'm driven by changing the world, making a little bit of a difference. So I appreciate people like you keep sharing your stories, keep, keep doing your thing, and um, we'll just move forward step-by-step step together. Sounds great. Thanks, All right. Guys. Yep. Have a good day. You too. Thanks for listening today. If you want to know more about The Lucas Project, find us at thelucasproject.org. If you want to know more about my story, head to justplusthemess.com and while there, subscribe to my monthly newsletter or maybe check out my memoir, Sunlight Burning at Midnight. In the meantime, please hit subscribe and maybe leave a quick review. These are so important in the podcast world as they help us gain traction and recognition, which translates into helping more caregivers. And until our next conversation, let's do what we do best. Just keep living. Thank you.